In preparation for today's message entitled Uncertain Times, please turn your Bibles to Matthew 25. We'll be reading 14 through 30. You can find that starting on page 830 in your Bible. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability, then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So he also had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set over you much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set over you much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who would receive the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gathered where I have no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I shall have received what is my own with interest. So take the talents from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has still more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Thanks, Tom. The last few have been interesting and, should I say, a little bit disconcerting. Because, uh, as most of you know, my wife Stephanie is uh, 40 weeks pregnant as of yesterday. And in my mind, I had thought of all these things that I wanted to get done before we got to like the 38 week mark. And, you know, I kind of put that as the mark as like any time after that was fair game. Things that I wanted to do, and I accomplished most of those things, and then I get to 38 weeks, and there's no baby. And so then I'm in this kind of limbo. I'm thinking, so what do I do now? So I'm working on these projects that I want to get done, and I don't know what I should start uh, or what I should be working on. And everything that I do is kind of tentative. You know, I'm working at the church and preparing messages, but not knowing if I'm actually going to preach them on Sunday. I'm making meetings with people, not knowing if I'm actually going to be able to meet those people. And as someone who likes to plan, it's been a little bit disconcerting because I want to know what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. And of course, we know that the birth is imminent. It's coming soon. It has to come soon. It has to come out eventually. (laughs) But we know when it happens, it still will be a little bit surprising because it could happen when sleeping could happen when I'm at work, could happen at any moment. So it's coming soon. We know it's coming, but 
when it happens, I think it still will be a little bit surprising. And I think about that and that experience that I've been experiencing the last couple of weeks, it reminds me a lot of the return of Christ. Because with the return of Christ, we see both of those realities. On the one hand, we know that Jesus is coming back soon. His return is imminent. He has to come back. Revelation 22.12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. So it's going to happen soon. And when I say soon, it's soon in God's eyes. We don't know if that's tomorrow or five years or ten years, twenty years, however long that may be, but his return is soon. But despite the fact that it's com- he's coming soon, when he comes, it will also be surprising, unexpected. Matthew 24 says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels nor the Son. Think about that. Even Jesus doesn't know the exact time frame. But the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you all must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So that reality I'm experiencing, all of us really as believers experience every day. We know Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon, but we don't know when. And we know that when he comes back, we will be doing whatever it is that we're doing, and it will be surprising, unexpected. And so then the question I'd like for us to consider today is how should we live in light of that reality? How should we live in light of the reality that Jesus is coming soon, But he's also coming in a way that we won't expect. He'll be coming in a surprising way. I think the passage that we're looking at today, Matthew 25, gives us some answers. In this passage, the focus is on the unexpected, surprising nature of the return of Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives his disciples some signs, some signals that the end is starting to come. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution, false teachers. He says, ironically, these things are the beginning of birth pains. The beginning indications that the end is coming close. And what's ironic about these things, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, when have these things happened? They've happened at all times since the return of since Christ came to the earth. What that indicates is that any time he could come back. He's coming soon. Beginning of chapter 25, Jesus tells the disciples the parable of the ten virgins and the bridegroom, and he encourages them, Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day or the hour. And then we get to the parable that we're looking at today, the parable of the talents. In this parable, a man is going on a journey. We don't know how long the journey is going to be. We know that the master is going to return. His return is soon. It's imminent. But we don't know when he's going to return. 
Travel in the ancient world was not like travel today. They didn't have airplanes or cars or GPS. When someone would go on a journey, it was a very variable uh, period of time when they would return. They didn't have cell phones or any way to communicate to let people know when they were going to come back. And so they would be walking or riding a donkey. And there were a lot of different factors that could influence when they would return. And so when they know these servants know that the master is going to return, he has to return eventually, but they don't know exactly when. And they don't have any warning that he's going to return. When he returns, he returns. We know, of course, that he entrusts each of these servants with different talents. One he entrusts with two talents, one with five, and one with one talent. We see that the ones with two, who are entrusted with two and five, they double their profit. They double what the master gave them. And they're commended. We see the one who receives one talent, he goes and he buries it in the ground. And then when the master comes back, he gives it to him and says, here it is, here's what's yours. But what's surprising to me, and as I've read this passage, it's always surprising to me how angry the master gets at this servant. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. He, he orders that he be cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, and I think of this passage and think of what's happening and I think, was it really that bad what he did? I mean, is it really that bad to be a fiscal conservative? I mean, this was the safest thing to do, to bury the, the, the money. That was the safest thing. There's no way that anyone was, was going to get that. It's so safe that even today or up to modern times, occasionally in, the ancient, in, uh, in Israel and that region, they'll find treasures that people buried that either they forgot about or they didn't have family or whatnot. It was the safest thing to do. So why does the master get so angry at this servant? And then we see this statement at the end that's also a little bit surprising. Verse 29, For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. I mean, it doesn't make sense that he's burying the treasure. It's not like he went and squandered the treasure. He's just keeping it safe. And why would the master take away from the person who doesn't have and give it to the one who has? I think part of the reason that we misunderstand and we have trouble with this passage is that we kind of don't understand the weight of what's happening here. First thing we do sometimes is we look at it economically. You know, and that's easy to do because these talents are, you know, a unit of, of money. And so we think about it as, you know, he just gave them some money and he put it in the ground, which would be equivalent of putting it in the bank. It's there, it's safe, turns it back to them. Or the other thing we do is we think of this passage in terms of talents as in skills or abilities or gifts. And we think, you know, you should use your gifts and talents and abilities to the glory of God and make sure you use them fully. That's true. And, and I think that's part of what this passage is talking about, but I don't think it really gets the weight of what's happening here. So when we think about these talents... These talents were an enormous amount of money, astronomical amount of money. This landowner, he's incredibly wealthy. 
In fact, when he commands the, the, the two servants who multiply their wealth, he says that I've entrusted you with a little bit. That two talents, five talents to the master is just a little bit. How much was a talent? A talent, according to a scholar R.T. France, was about the amount that a laborer would expect to earn in half of a lifetime. In the footnotes in the ESV, uh, in your Bible, it may say that it was about 20 years labor. In conventional uh, reckoning, it was about 6,000 denarius. One denarius was the average uh, day's labor for, one, for a worker. So it's equivalent to 6,000 days' labor. I calculated that out in today's terms based on the median salary in the United States for part of 2019. And if you calculate that out, it would come to $1,086,000. So this is not a small sum of money. This is not $100 that he buries. This is an enormous sum of money. And so when we think about talents, what, what do these talents represent? Of course, they could represent money. They could represent gifts, skills, abilities. But I think when we think of them in that sense, we undercut the weight behind them. Yes, they represent money. Yes, they represent skills. But they represent all that God gives us. What is in the world that has that much value? It's our lives. It's everything that God gives us, our experiences, our skills, our gifts, our opportunities, all that God has entrusted to us. And I believe that's what is behind the talent that God gives us. He's not just squandering a unit of currency. He's, in essence, squandering his life. There's so many things that this servant could have done with this much money, with a talent. He could have invested it with the bankers and made Quite easily, 50% profit. Of course, there was a little bit of risk there. But he could have done so much with this talent, and yet he chooses simply to bury it. And I believe in a similar way, God has given each of us varying amounts of gifts, skills, opportunities, experiences, relationships. The question is, what are we going to do with those things? Each of us, maybe we have a different talent. What does it look like to have one talent or two talents versus five? Maybe somebody with one talent is single mom, single dad, works a blue-collar job, never does anything that the world would consider extraordinary. They raise a family, but they're faithful. They serve the Lord. Maybe a person who has five or ten talents, someone like Billy Graham, who preached to 210 million people in 185 countries, the most that anyone has ever spoke to a people uh, Spoke the gospel to people live. But the thing is, it's not about the amount of talents. See, the master, he gives the exact same commendation to both the, the servant who had two talents and the servant who has five talents. He says, both of them are both called good and faithful servants. Both of them are given more authority. Both are invited into the joy of their master. It's not about the number of talents. It's about faithfulness with the things that you're given. So that's the first reason I think we misunderstand the story because when we think about a talent, we think about maybe just a skill or a gift or a little bit of money and we don't realize that he's squandering an enormous gift that this master has allowed him to manage. The second reason I think we misunderstand the story is that we focus too much on what the third servant does and not enough on why he does it. 
We focus on the fact that he buries the treasure. And I don't think that's the most important part of the story. It's not as wrong that he buried the treasure, it's that why he buried the treasure. If there were different circumstances and he would have buried the treasure for a different reason, maybe he would have been commended. But it's the reason behind why he buries the treasure. Look at what it says in verse 24. He gives the reason why he buries the treasure. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. We see in this passage that he, this third servant has a completely negative and I would say false view of who the master is. And he impugns the master's character. He says, I knew. This word for know is the word gnosko in Greek, which usually come, means come to know by experience. I've come to realize from dealing with you that you are a hard man. This word for hard can also be translated as cruel or merciless. I've come to know by experience that you are a cruel, merciless, hard master. It's a terrible thing to say of the master. But that's what he believes. And of course, fear was part of the motivation why he buried the treasure. He says, I didn't want to risk losing it because I'd make you angry. But also there was some laziness, some sloth behind it, as the master says that he's a lazy and slothful servant. And he indicates it here. He says, you're a hard man. You gather where you did not scatter. You reap where you did not sow. And in his mind, he thinks to himself, so if he's just going to take it from me, then why should I work? Why should I invest this money? Why should I risk doing anything if he's just going to take the produce of what I've God, and, and, and take it for himself. So he believes he's a cruel, harsh master who takes what he does not reap. He gathers what he does not scatter, and he thinks to himself, I'm not going to do anything. I'll just give him back his money because there's no sense in working hard. The only way we can go is down in this relationship. But here's the thing. I think he completely understands who the master is. I think he completely misunderstands the heart of the master. Because we see that these two servants who are faithful, and of course, again, they didn't do too much. In those days, interest rates were about 50% because there wasn't a lot of free-flowing cash. You didn't have to do a whole lot. They didn't have to do a whole lot. But they're faithful to their master. And what does the master say to them? He doesn't just offer them a free fee for their service. He offers them the joy of the master. Another word for joy can be translated as feast. He invites them into the joy or the feast of their master. He, enjoys, he invites them into his party. He enjoy, invites them to join and partake of the produce at his expense. We also see... That at the end of the story, the man who has one talent, it's taken away from him. And it's given to the one who has, who had originally five talents, now has ten. Now he has eleven. And I find that interesting. Because even after the master has returned, even after he's settled accounts with the servants, this faithful servant, he still has ten talents. Does that sound like a master who reaps what he doesn't sow, 
gathers what he does not scatter. This master is incredibly gracious. He invites the servants into the joy of his party, of his feast. And to the faithful servants, he gives them more and more and more authority and responsibility. It doesn't sound like a cruel, harsh master at all. So how do we bring these things together? How do we apply these things to our lives today? We see each servant again receives an exorbitant amount of money to manage. Two of the servants, the one with two, the one with five, they're faithful to their master. They believe the heart of the master is good. They believe that investing the master's money will pay off. And in response, the master is good to them. He invites him into his joy. He has, they have a relationship with the master. The third servant buries his ta- talent, believing that the master is cruel, harsh, opportunistic, and he finds judgment. He believes there's no use working hard. There's no use trying. There's no use risking for the master because the master is just going to come and take it all away. And so he squanders this incredible gift that this master has given him. This passage, I think, teaches us a lot about what we should be doing to prepare for the return of Christ. No matter who we are, no matter what weaknesses we have, no matter what disadvantages we have, God has given each and, one of us, each and every one of us an incredible gift. He's given us the gift of life. He's given us experiences, opportunities, skills, gifts, all of these things to use for His glory. But what will He find us doing when He returns? I think it all comes down to how we view our Heavenly Father. Do we view Him as a cruel, opportunistic, selfish master? Or do we view Him as a good, kind Heavenly Father? This isn't just a theoretical exercise. I believe that this directly influences how we live our lives. Considering the following quotes from some thinkers of the 20th century. Carl Sagan once said this, By definition, an immortal creature is a cruel God because he never, having to face the fear of death, creates innumerable creatures who do. Why should he do that? If he's omniscient, he could be kinder, create immortals, secure from the danger of death. He sets about creating a universe in which at least many parts of it, perhaps the universe as a whole, dies. And in many myths... The one possibility that gods are most anxious about is that humans will discover some sense of immortality or even, as the myth of the Tower of the Babel, for example, attempt to stride the high, to the high heavens. There is a clear imperative in Western religion that humans must, must remain small and mortal creatures. Why? It's a little bit like the rich imposing poverty on the poor, then asking to be loved because of it. Woody Allen once said this, God is either cruel or he's incompetent. Translation, the master is hard, merciful, cruel, reaping what he doesn't sow, gathering what he doesn't scatter. One of the biggest objections that people have to Christianity today is if there's a God, then why does he allow this or that to happen? Why did he allow my loved one to come down with cancer? Why does he allow babies to be born, have incurable Illnesses die before their second birthday. If there's a God, then why is He so cruel? If that's your viewpoint, 
you have to hold on to protect everything that you have. Because from that, you either believe that God is cruel, you don't want to have anything to do with Him, or there's no God at all. And either way, you have to protect what you have. Because this life is all that there is, and one day this life is going to be taken away from you. So you can't risk. You can't give to others. You can't pour, out, pour yourself out for others. You have to protect yourself. You have to enjoy this life as much as you can now. Yet Christians see the world differently. Christians recognize that, yes, this world can be cruel. Living in this sinful world is a harsh reality sometimes, but that's not what God intended for us. That's not the life that God intended to us to live. And see, God gives us this incredible gift, the gift of life. But He gives us an even more incredible gift. He gives us the gift of His life. The most incredible, expensive gift that He could give us, the gift of His Son. And God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we might enter into the joy of the Master, that we might enter into His feast. And so we as believers believe that God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. We believe that if God did not spare His own Son, will He spare any other thing to us? That everything that He does, He does for our good and His glory. And Christians believe that one day we'll enter into the joy of the Master. It all depends on how we view the Master. Do we view Him as a cruel harsh tyrant or loving Heavenly Father who gave us not only the gift of His life, but the gift of His Son. Jesus is coming soon. When He comes, it will be surprising, unexpected. What will He find us doing when He comes? During His 1960 presidential campaign, John F. Kennedy uh, kept telling the story near the end of some of his speeches. There was a story of a man named Colonel Davenport, and he was the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. One day in 1789, the sky in Hartford darkened incredibly, so much so that everyone thought that the world was coming to an end. And so they called for the meeting to be adjourned. And yet he wanted this meeting to continue. And he said this, The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not... There's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. He wanted to be doing what he was supposed to do, even up to the end. So the question I have for us today is, will, when Christ returns, will he find us protecting, or will he find us producing? Will he find us protecting or will he find us producing? Will he try, find us trying to just hold on to everything that we can in this life, hoping that it doesn't come, off of, come out of our hands and our fingers? Or will we live with our hands open, knowing that everything we've been given is a gift from God, knowing that God loves us and cares for us and that one day we'll enter into the joy, the feast of the Master. Morris L. West once said this, if a master... If a man is centered upon himself, the smallest risk is too great for him because both success and failure can destroy him. Be centered upon God, then no risk is too great because success is already guaranteed. The successful union of creator and creature beside which everything else is meaningless. One final passage in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus 
starts telling his disciples some things that they didn't want to hear. They, up to this point, they're thinking that Jesus uh, is going to be the Messiah, that he's going to be the king. And they're going to be kind of his subjects, his servants, his right-hand men. But then Jesus gives them the, the harsh reality that he's going to die. He's going to suffer when he goes to Jerusalem. We see in this passage that Peter rebukes Jesus. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. And you can just listen along. It's not on the screen. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after him, after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Peter, in essence, tells Jesus, bury your treasure. Protect it. Don't talk about going to the cross. Don't talk about suffering. You're the Messiah. You're the King. And we're not going to let that happen. Just protect, bury the treasure. But Jesus came not to protect, but to produce. He came to give. To pour Himself out for the sins of all of us. And because He did that, we also can do the same thing. Whoever would save His life will lose it. Jesus gave His life for us and we also need to produce, to give ourselves to others. Because we have a good Heavenly Father who cares for us. And one day He'll invite us into His kingdom. Some of us have one talent. Some of us have two talents. Some of us have five. Some of us maybe we even have ten. It's not about the amount that we've been given. It's about what we do with it. Will we be faithful when Christ returns? He's coming soon. We don't know when. When He comes, it'll be unexpected. But will He find us protecting? Or will He find us producing? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You gave Yourself for us. That You didn't bury the treasure. You didn't try to protect Your life. But that You gave Your life at great expense. We thank You that You give us experiences, opportunities, relationships, gifts. And we thank You that You give us Your life. That we can have a relationship with You. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't squander what we have. That we would trust in You. We would believe that You are a good Heavenly Father. And we would live lives that reflect that. Lord, I pray for anyone here who maybe doesn't know You who's never accepted your gift of salvation. What a terrible thing it would be to squander such a gift that you went through so much to give us life, to give us peace, so that we could enter into your joy and for us to squander that. Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they turn to you. Lord, for all the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would be people who look forward to your coming. We don't know when it's going to be. But I pray that we would look forward to it. And that we'd live every day in light of that reality. 
doing what you've called us to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.